please be seated. Uh, grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. There's a famous English missionary in the, from the early 1900s named C.T. Studd. Along with having one of the best names ever, uh, he is also has some of the best quotes. And it's one of his famous quotes that is our sermon title today. Here's the quote. It says, the light that shines farthest shines brightest nearest home. Think about that quote for a second. The light that shines farthest shines brightest nearest home. I think of a, a big spotlight that lights up the sky. Uh, that spotlight is able to shine so far into the night sky because of the brightness of its source. The closer you get to the light fixture itself, the brighter that that light would become to your eyes. Or think about the sun. The sun is about 93 million miles away from the earth. And yet its light travels all this way to help us to see. That's because it's extremely bright. The sun, they estimate, is the brightness of around three octillion candles, which is the number three followed by 27 zeros. Big number. And the sun is so bright that if you got too close, you would instantly burn up. That's what C.T. Studd meant when he said the light that shines farthest shines brightest nearest home. Except he wasn't talking about spotlight or the sun, but he was talking about the light of Christ. We as believers, we as a church, want to shine the light of the gospel far around the world. We know that's our calling. That's the Great Commission. We just heard that read. But if we're to shine far, we must also shine brightest here right here in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods. So what does that mean for us as a church? I mean, what does that mean for you and for me as individuals? Well, that's what I want to unpack this morning on a day we've chosen to call Celebrating Multiply. Every year on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we set aside time to reflect on, celebrate, and reignite our passion for the Multiply 2028 vision. This is a vision statement we adopted four years ago on this very Sunday. We declared as a church that our vision is to become a multiplying church, establishing campuses locally and planting autonomous churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. And we want to do that by 2028, which is our 50th anniversary. If you call Blue Valley your church home, my hope is that you know that vision. And that you've begun to see what it means for our church. We've already witnessed God do some amazing things as we heard from, from Mary Grace. Like planning Overflow Church in Martin City. Planning a church and sponsoring over 200 children in Aldeas Altas, Brazil. And then starting Mission Esperanza, our Spanish language mission just down the hall. And we've already begun to dream and brainstorm the next wave of multiply opportunities for us. But I want to take a moment today. And be reminded, again, of the significance of this vision we've adopted. And I want us to think about what it might mean for our light to shine farther by shining brighter here. Let's look at a story from the book of Acts about one of the most famous churches in history. It's a church in a city called Antioch. Uh, we've looked at this church before because it's the first missionary-sending church in Christian history. Uh, they were the ones who sent Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey to plant churches in unreached places. 
And here's the famous passage we go to about the church at Antioch. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So right here, this is the, the big moment. We see all these great people in the church at Antioch. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting, and the Holy Spirit himself speaks to them. And they send out Paul and Barnabas. And in the next two chapters, churches are planted and disciples are made. But how did the church at Antioch get to this point? Who led them to this point of playing such a huge role in the Christian mission? Well, we might assume that it was Paul. He gets a lot of attention in these chapters, and rightly so. He wrote 13 books of the Bible. Uh, he had a radical salvation experience where he went from Christian persecutor to missionary. And he's the major character in the book of Acts. But the key to the church at Antioch's success in sending out the first missionaries is actually owed to a person that we might overlook. And that person is Barnabas. Barnabas doesn't get a lot of press or focus, but he's one of the most important figures in the history of the early church. Uh, flip with me in your Bible over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is when Barnabas is first introduced. The church at this point was still confined to the city of Jerusalem, but they were growing. They were coming together to be taught by the apostles. They were reaching new people, and the believers were selling their possessions and supporting one another. And here's what we read in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. From the very beginning, we, we see the, the heart of Barnabas. The first thing we read of him is, is his sacrifice for the church. It was no small thing to own your own field in this time. But he sold it, and he brought the money to the church. So we see that he believed so strongly in the church's mission that he was willing to sacrifice everything for it. We also learn here that Barnabas was his nickname, which meant son of encouragement. Now flip with me over to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. This is the next time this fellow Barnabas pops up on the scene. Saul had just been converted on the road to Damascus. And after his sight was restored, he began immediately preaching to the Jewish people there. And they didn't like that. They wanted to kill him. So Saul escaped Damascus. He went down to Jerusalem to meet the other apostles. Remember, these are the guys who Saul had once tried to hunt down and kill. And now he's showing up claiming, hey, guys, I believe like you. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on your side now. I, I like Jesus, just like you. And you can imagine how they were kind of like uh, a little bit skeptical of it. Well, here's what we see, Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 27. And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas 
took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So here, out of nowhere, again, we see Barnabas being the son of encouragement. He's sticking up for Paul, vouching for him to the disciples. So, so we see that Barnabas, he believed that the gospel truly had the power to save and change anyone. Now flip with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts 11. At this point in the story, the gospel had begun to spread beyond Jerusalem. Why? Was it because the believers got, you know, really fired up about missions? Well, no, it was actually because of persecution. You see, when Stephen was killed, he was the first Christian martyr, the believers scattered. And for the first time, the gospel was carried outside of Israel. Persecution was the divinely appointed means for the expansion of the church, and that is important to note. The other important thing to note is that those who went sharing the gospel outside of Israel were not the apostles. In fact, the apostles were the only ones who stayed in Jerusalem. Rather, it was the ordinary, regular, unnamed Christians who took the gospel to the unreached. So in Acts 11, we read that the gospel comes to Antioch. Look at Acts 11, verses 19 through 22. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so who started the church in Antioch? One of the most famous churches in Christian history. We see it was unnamed believers. People who were just simply faithful to share the gospel where God led them. That's amazing. Believers, they just show up and they begin to evangelize the Jews. Then another group shows up and they begin to evangelize the Hellenists, those who were the Greek-speaking people, the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, you have this group of diverse Christians, brand new believers growing and making noise in the community. Well, the church in Jerusalem, they hear about it. They want to check it out. So who do they send to Antioch? They send Barnabas. Let's keep going. Acts 11, verses 23 to 26. When he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas, he shows up on the scene in Antioch and he can't believe what he's seeing. So what does Barnabas do? Well, he goes to get Saul in Tarsus, which was not a short trip. And he goes to Saul. He says, man, you got to get over here. you got to see what's going on in Antioch. We need your help. Because in the ancient world, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It was the capital of the province of Syria with, we estimated at this time, over 500,000 people living there. And because of that, it was strategically positioned for the global expansion of the gospel. And it's in this place we see the disciples were first called Christians. 
First time, and this is significant. Because Jewish people, they would never have called them Christians because Christ meant Messiah, and they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That means this nickname likely came from the Greek people, and it probably wasn't intended as a compliment. It was meant to be dismissive of them as just being followers or, or little copycats of Jesus the Christ. You're just Christians. But this also meant that this little church in Antioch was beginning to be noticed. In a huge pagan city, they were being noticed for their faith in Christ. And it's here that Paul and Barnabas spend the whole year investing their time and energy into this church. And what do you think they were teaching them? We can have little doubt that they were sowing the very seeds of gospel multiplication that had been planted in them. Paul, I'm certain, told the story of his conversion and how he'd been commissioned to reach the Gentiles. We, we know that story well. But let's not look, overlook the vital role of Barnabas. It was Barnabas who from the very beginning sacrificed what he had for the mission. It was Barnabas who stepped out, put his neck on the line, and vouched for Paul. It was Barnabas who left his home to see what was happening in Antioch. It was Barnabas who went to recruit Paul to be a part of what God was doing. Barnabas, from the beginning, was a model of sacrificing for the kingdom. It was he who set the stage for multiplication. So it makes total sense that the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Paul to go out on the very first missionary journey. It must have seemed to this church as the most natural next step for them to send out and plant more churches and invest in others what had been invested in them. And that's what happened. Many, many churches were planted as a result of Antioch's faithfulness, including the very first churches in Asia and Europe. These people quite literally changed the world, leading to untold new followers of Jesus in unreached places all over the globe. The church at Antioch was a testimony to this truth. The light that shines farthest shines brightest nearest home. Their far-reaching impact was made possible by their near-reaching impact in their own community. The investment Paul and Barnabas made in their local church was what led to their multiplying into other churches. And I believe the same thing must be true for us. If we're going to be a multiplying church, as we've stated in our vision, we must be willing to shine right here in our own community. We cannot expect to send people out if we have no people coming in. If we want to multiply, we must start with a burden for the lost people around us right now. So this morning, in the time we have left, I want you to think with me about two questions. Two questions in light of what we've seen from Barnabas and the church at Antioch. Here's the first question. Number one, what am I doing? I want us to make this personal. And I want you to ask yourself this question, each of you. What am I doing? Because one of the dangers of our, multiply, of our church's multiply vision is that we see it as a vision of the church as a whole and not as a vision of the church as individuals. Here's what I mean by that. We hear that Blue Valley wants to plant churches around the world, and we say, woohoo! <laughs> That's fantastic! You go get them, guys. 
Over here, the Blue Valley wants to start a new campus locally, and we say, yeah, that's great. We're cheering you on. But we never stop to consider what that might mean for us personally. We see the vision as belonging to the church institutionally instead of the people who make up the church when the people who make up the church are the actual church. When we say the vision, the multiply vision is Blue Valley's vision, we mean that it's your vision and my vision. By being a member here, by calling this your church home, you have signed up for this. This can't just be a slogan on the website or a cool graphic on the wall, but it has to be our marching orders. For this vision to be accomplished, it's going to take all of us owning it for ourselves and answering the question individually, what am I doing? What am I doing to move the needle toward us becoming a multiplying church? And the first thing I would humbly ask you to consider is helping us support this vision financially. I am continually grateful for the generosity of our church. So many of you give so faithfully, and we could not do ministry without you. But I want you to know, we are in a particularly vital season of giving. We are less than $700,000 from being completely debt-free and being able to free up literally thousands of dollars each month that we can put toward more multiply efforts. Look, I know that for many of you, especially our young families or those on a fixed income, things are tight with inflation and other demands. Trust me, we understand. And if that's you, please know I'm not asking you to give. But maybe you've been a recipient of Blue Valley's ministry and yet you've never contributed financially. Or maybe you just fell out of the habit somewhere along the way. Or maybe God's put you in a position to generously give above and beyond what others are not able to right now. If that's you, please hear my heart. Please hear this in the sincere way I intend it. We need your help. We need your help. We believe we have a tremendous opportunity to impact our community here and communities around the world, but we've got to finish the Multiply campaign. It's not just the Antioch campus's job to do that. It's ours as well. And we are earnestly praying for God's provision in this season. And I want to ask you to pray with me on that too. But above just giving, there's a bigger task I would call you to in this season. If it's true that the light that shines farthest shines brightest nearest home, then our focus needs to be on reaching those closest to where we spend most of our time. So let me challenge you. Guys, it's time to get serious about reaching our neighbors. All of us have been placed in a mission field right where we live, whether that be a house or an apartment or assisted living. God has placed us there with lost people just feet from our doorsteps. And if we cannot reach those people here, what makes us think we'll be able to reach them somewhere else? How are we going to plant churches and live on mission around the world if we cannot do that here in Olathe? Joining a church plant team does not magically make you evangelistic. Getting on a plane with a passport does not turn you into a missionary. If we're to shine far, we must shine brightest right here. <clears throat> And that starts with our neighbors. 
So let me challenge you. Do you know your neighbors? Do you know their names? Do you know their stories? Do you have a strategy to pray for them regularly by name? That's why we introduced the Bless Every Home app, which over 100 people are using and are finding so helpful. When's the last time you invited them over for dinner or a cup of coffee? When's the last time you invited them to church or had a conversation just about what God's doing in your life? Again, if we can't do that right here, what business do we have going somewhere else for the kingdom? One of the reasons Paul and Barnabas were sent out and had success was because they reached people where they were. Paul was going to Damascus to imprison Christians, but he ends up getting saved. And what does he do? He just goes out and starts preaching the gospel. Barnabas, he gets sent to Antioch from Jerusalem, never been there before. What does he do? He shows up and he just joins right in and starts preaching the gospel. So when the Holy Spirit says, hey, send these guys out, there's no wonder what they will do or how they will do it. They knew their light would shine far because it had shined brightest at home. Let's start here. Let's start now. Let's get serious about reaching the lost people God has placed around us. So when the Holy Spirit says it's time to go, it's not some radical, unexpected thing. But it's simply a call to keep doing what you've been doing in a new place with new people. Let's ask ourselves, what am I doing? And here's the natural next question, last question, but the much harder one. Number two, what am I willing to give up? Barnabas demonstrated a pattern of sacrifice from the beginning. He sold his field and gave the money away. He gave up his home and went to Antioch. He gave up comfort to travel for days to find Paul. Then he gives up his new church to go out on mission. What are you willing to give up? Guys, listen to me. I've come to believe that perhaps the greatest threat to our multiplication is comfort. The threat will be those of us who love Blue Valley more than the kingdom. Those of us who love our Sunday school class more than the kingdom. What will stop this vision dead in its tracks is when we hear about the next church plant opportunity and we look around thinking, man, I wonder who's going to go. <laughs> I'll send some money. I'll pray for them. But I can't go. I, I serve in this really important position on Sundays. And, you know, I've built all these great relationships in my Sunday school class. That's my family. And what about my kids? I don't want to have to uproot them and they're going to lose their church friends. So when we start the next campus or plant the next church, will you sincerely and prayerfully consider sacrificing what you have here at Ridgeview to go? Not all of us need to go. We understand that. But will you take time and pray, Lord, is it me? Do I need to go? Or as Mary Grace said, even better is to pray, Lord, do I need to stay? Will you be willing to give up what's comfortable and familiar? Will you be willing to give up your community here? Will you be willing to give up a full band of worship every Sunday or a children's ministry run well with amazing volunteers? Those are just some of the cost of being a sending, multiplying church. And looking back, I can see how God sowed those seeds in my own life. I grew up in the premier church in my hometown. We were the biggest church. We had this huge building right off the town square. 
We had the biggest youth group. All the cool kids went with tons of great volunteers in this basement with ping pong tables and pool tables. And we went to camp every summer at Panama City Beach. We had a huge VBS and kids ministry. All my friends went to my church. Every relationship I had was right there. And then one day in middle school, our church had a split. My dad, who was the pastor, resigned. And overnight, all of that was taken away. People who every Sunday for years smiled at me and hugged me, trashed my family's name and stopped speaking to us. We woke up on Sunday mornings and for the first time we were the guests visiting other churches. Before I was the preacher's kid where everybody knew me and they spoke to me and I felt welcome and now for the first time I was that awkward new kid that no one talked to. After doing that for a year my dad decided to plant a new church. We bounced around trying to find a place to meet. We met uh, in an old restaurant. We met in an old car dealership. Our student ministry at first was just me and my sisters sitting in the back room of this old dealership with concrete floors and metal chairs. We had no budget, no volunteers, no games, nothing. And I'm not going to lie, I grieved the loss of our former church, my home church. I was just about to go into student ministry, which I'd always dreamed of because I watched my big sisters do all this cool stuff. And now I felt like God had taken it away. But the new church grew. Pretty soon other kids started coming, but they weren't the nice middle class kids I was used to. They were kids who didn't grow up in church like I did. Kids who came from rougher backgrounds than mine because those are the people we were reaching. My dad's vision for this church was a lot like this other quote from C.T. Studd. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. <laughs> that was the church's vision right there. I remember one week when I was in high school, my dad introduced me to a new family with a 17-year-old freshman named Colton. Colton had just moved from Florida where he was in a gang and had tattoos across his knuckles. Growing up, I went to church with kids with their clip-on ties and their names stitched on their Bible cases. Now I'm making friends with a guy who's teaching me how to make gang signs with my hands. <laughs> I kid you not, I just started driving. I locked my keys in my truck one night at church, and Colton was all too happy to show me how to break in and get them out. <laughs> but Colton and I became friends. Because we lived in a small town, he also went to my high school. Now that I could drive after school, I'd walk to the parking lot with all my cool friends, and we'd go to Sonic or Wendy's and get a snack. And One day, I remember I was walking out to my truck, and here comes Colton. He's yelling my name. He needed a ride home because he'd missed the bus. And I'm walking with my friends who all grew up in nice families like me. They all had their own trucks with, you know, cool decals and seat covers. And I'm thinking, oh, not now, Colton. Not now. My friends asked me, they said, how does that guy know you? And I was embarrassed to say he goes to my church. Man, I learned so much during that time, and God changed my heart. Looking back, I can see so clearly God taught me about what it means to really live on mission, what it means to really love people who are far from him 
and what it means to sacrifice. I'm ashamed to say it, but back then, being Colton's friend was a sacrifice I needed to make. Leaving my church and everything that was nice and comfortable was a sacrifice. But through my parents' example, their willingness to just go wherever God led them and the people I saw changed by the gospel, I learned that the sacrifice of the mission is worth it. Yes, obedience to God always has a cost, but the reward on the other side, the joy that comes from seeing lives change for eternity, it makes it all worth it. Think about the sacrifice of the church at Antioch. They had like the dream team of pastors. Every week they got to listen to Paul and Barnabas preach the word and Michael W. Smith played the invitation. So when the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Paul away, I wonder if a few folks thought, are you sure that's what he said? I mean, what about some other guys? Are you sure he was talking about them? I mean, that's our main guys. That's like Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey of our church. We cannot give up those guys. What about us? Who's going to teach? What are we going to do? And yet they sent them out in obedience. They gave them up for the mission. And I want you to know, if we continue down this road we're on, we are going to lose some people we love. Not all of us will be called to leave Blue Valley or Johnson County, but some of us will. Some people in our Sunday school class, some of our closest friends may accept the call to join a new campus or a new church. Might even be someone in your family, one of your kids as they grow up and move off to the mission field. They might be like me and move the grandkids nine hours away and hear about it every holiday. We might lose some of our staff members, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, children's workers, big givers. We might lose the chance to be a big church and have a nice new building. And we might lose people to other churches if they decide this particular vision is not for them. And that's okay. In fact, I believe it's what we signed up for when we adopted this vision. Sacrifice is what we sign up for when we decide to follow Christ. But here's the promise he makes to us. Luke chapter 18, Peter said to Jesus, he said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. <clears throat> Jesus said following him is a losing game. You will lose something. But what you gain will be exceedingly greater than you could ever imagine. That's a promise. Would you bow your head with me?